of the greatness of our God and what he has done for us. I want you to find Ephesians chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word or in your Bible app. And as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus and to us, friends, we come to an amazing text today that's perhaps one of the best-known texts in the Bible about the issue of marriage and how husbands and wives relate. So as we come to Ephesians chapter 5 in this text on marriage, I want to ask you the question at the beginning, what is the purpose for marriage? If you were to ask your kids, this could be a fun thing to do maybe around the lunch table today, ask your kids, why do people get married and see what they say. But if you ask just the average Christian, why do people get married? What is the purpose of marriage? It might be interesting the answers we get. I think in our culture, a lot of it would be happiness or companionship or to have someone to help me or to have kids or we could think of a myriad of possibilities of why people might think the purpose of marriage exists or what it's for. But for us to answer that question biblically, there's an important framework we need to understand before we even get into our text today about marriage. And that is, first of all, that God's the one who created marriage. It is God's idea. We'll look at this in a little bit back in Genesis 2, but God is the one who made marriage. We also need to realize that marriage, in a sense, is temporary. In Matthew 22, we're told that there's no marriage in heaven. There's no giving of marriage in heaven. We will not be married in heaven heaven one day. So what is the purpose of marriage? That God made it for this world and for this time in the blip of eternity, but that it will not continue in the new heavens and the new earth. Why did God create marriage? What purpose was he trying to accomplish that will be fulfilled one day to where it's no longer needed to accomplish that purpose in the future? Friends, it is vital for us to understand the purpose for marriage. I'm convinced one reason there's so much brokenness and so much pain in Christian families today is because we've missed the primary reason that God created marriage. So over the next three weeks, we're going to tackle 12 verses from Ephesians here about God's plan for marriage. Now, you're used to me doing about a verse at a time. In fact, last week our verse was nine words, and the whole sermon came from nine words. Yesterday, we're going to read all 12 verses of this section of Ephesians, so don't pass out. We're going to tackle a 12-verse passage today, but don't worry. We're going to spend three weeks tackling this 12-verse passage. This text is incredible, but the way Paul has written this, you can't just take two verses here and two verses here and understand it. Paul weaves together his commands to wives, his commands to husbands, with his teaching about who Jesus is and what the church is. And he weaves it together into this beautiful tapestry. And we can't take apart like one string here and one string here. We have to see the wholeness of what he's writing in all 12 verses. So we're going to tackle all of them together over several weeks. But today our focus as we look at these 12 verses is why did God create marriage? Now friends, if you're married... This is so important for you because if we get wrong, the primary reason God made marriage is to create a lot of heartache in our lives and in our homes. There's also much grace. If we begin to realize I have the wrong purpose for even being in my marriage, God gives much grace to reorient his children to what is most important. Now, for those of you, though, who are single and desire to get married, this is incredibly important for you as well because this will shape the type of person you want to marry. This will shape how you view dating and relationships. So students, our youth in college, don't check out on this because you think marriage is a long way off here. What God says about marriage should define how you pursue dating in high school and college. It should define how you approach relationships. But friends, if you're single or single again, but yet know God has called you to singleness, this is important for you as well. If you have the gift of singleness, if God has called you to be single in his plan, he's done that to free you up time to minister to others, to be about his kingdom work. And it's going to be vital for you to understand how your married friends are struggling and what they need so that you can come alongside them to pray for them, encourage them, to serve them, and to help them. So bottom line, friends, this is a text for all of us. Regardless of what season in life, regardless of what our marital status is, this is God's word for every single one of us. 
So as we come to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, as we read the text today, I want you to look for something as we read. And that simply is, what does Paul talk about the most? As we come to these 12 verses, what does Paul talk about the most? Because that's going to help us understand what God's main primary purpose is in marriage. Now, there's a lot of purposes, but what is ultimate? What's the main thing God's doing in bringing husbands and wives together? So let's see in God's Word what, what Paul tells us the most about this section on marriage. So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? You get a longer stretch break today because we're going to read 12 verses, not one. But Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, we're going to read to verse 33. Words are on the screen, and I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband, would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have given us your word, that we might know who you are, that we might see your character, and Lord, even that we might see your purposes on display. Lord, to think that you, the creator of all things, who owe us absolutely nothing, would choose to give us a glimpse into the mystery of your purposes of why you do what you do. And God, I pray today as we look at the purpose of marriage, God, that your word would come alive to every single one of us. Regardless of what place in life we are, that your word would be powerful in our hearts today and that your Holy Spirit would come and apply your word to each of our situations as only you can, that, Lord, you might be glorified, that your church might be built up, and, Lord, that we might find joy in understanding more of who you are and what you want for us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what is the purpose for marriage? Why did God create marriage? I want you to see this main idea today from our text. It's simply this. God created marriage to help us understand the relationship between Christ and his church. Why did God create marriage? What was his primary objective? It was to help us understand the relationship between Christ and his church. Again, there's many reasons for marriage. Some are bad, but there's many good reasons to get married. Not those are unimportant, but what is ultimate? What is the very climax of what all that God is trying to do? And I believe from our text is this, that God creates marriage, though many things come out of it, is primarily to help us understand the relationship of Christ and his church. That means the reason for marriage, the purpose of it, is much bigger than my story or your story. It's much bigger than our happiness, much bigger than companionship, much bigger than our need for help. He creates marriage to show something absolutely glorious, to help us get our minds around something far beyond us. So guys, for those of you who've read ahead, for the men who were thinking ahead, great, he's going to talk about the role of wives today. We're not going there today. Now for the wives who read ahead and thought, oh good, he's getting my husband good today. We're not going there today either. Because, friends, for us to understand the commands to husbands or the commands to wives, they make no sense and they'll be misconstrued and abused apart from understanding what marriage is all about. And that's the picture of Christ 
and the church. So we have to take a step back before we get to all the commands to husbands and wives to understand the relationship of Christ and the church and what role marriage plays in helping us understand that. Now, before we go further, I want to show you something because, and I normally don't show you this, but when I'm studying for a text, one thing I do at the beginning of the week is I diagram the text. I know that doesn't sound incredibly exciting, but Brad's going to put it up there for you. I do what I call a structural diagram on Mondays of each week to make sure I understand the text. Now, I know it's a little bit hard to see, but the colors are what's important here. This week, as I looked at the text, I thought, I need to color code it. Now, for those of you who know me well, you're not surprised I color coded my Word document this week. I went through and I said, I want to, because Paul interweaves so much stuff together, I started with, okay, let's see what all he wrote to the wives. So I put that in red. So, okay, let's see what he wrote to the husband. So I put that in blue. But then I started noticing there's something much bigger that covers this whole passage, and that's talk of Christ and the church. So I went back and I highlighted in yellow. Everything that wasn't really about husbands and wives was about Christ, who Jesus is, and what he does for his church. And notice what's the most prominent thing in this passage is not the instructions to wives in red, not the, instru- excuse me, the instructions to husbands in blue, but the teaching of what we call Christology, of who Jesus is and what he does for his church. So what's the focus of this marriage text? Not marriage, but Jesus. What's the focus of this text? Not how we treat each other. That's part of it. The primary focus is what Christ has done for the church and how the church responds to Christ. Paul beautifully weaves together instructions husbands needs, instructions wives need to teach us something much bigger than our marriages, and that is the relationship of Christ and his church. And so I want us to see this morning the foundation for understanding anything else about marriage is this, that God created marriage to help us understand, to know how Christ relates to the church and how the church relates to Christ. Now, friends, the foundation of all this is simply the idea that God created marriage. God did not make marriage as a capitulation to our desires to keep us from getting in trouble. God didn't make marriage as a, just a caving into the culture because that's what everyone else was doing, so he gave a stamp to it. God is the one who designed marriage. Look at verse number 31 here in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, what is Paul doing here? This should sound familiar to us. He's quoting the Old Testament here. Ephesians 5.31 is a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 2. He's quoting for us when God made marriage. So if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, let's look at when God made marriage and what we learn about it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 24. Genesis 2.18, we see this. Then God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now just pause there. God has just made the universe and all of its complexities. God has just made the beauty of the earth. God has made everything, and it is stunning. And as God makes the world and the universe, he keeps going, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then God gets to this, and he looks at the man he's just made and said, it's not good. Why? Because God's purposes can't be fulfilled with one man by himself. It's not good that there's just one man here alone in the world. And so what, is, what happens? Look at verse 19. Now the ground the Lord God had formed, every beast of the field... And every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord, caused, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Now verse 24, this should sound familiar. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
That's the, that's the ordination of marriage. God creating marriage is the first institution in this world that he's made to make something good that he saw was not good, and that was the man was alone by himself. And so what does God do? God take, makes someone else alongside Adam who is also made in the image of God in many ways so similar to Adam, but in many ways so remarkably different. And he brings them together. Now go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, where it quotes Genesis 2. And notice what God does in bringing them together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, I love the word for hold fast here because in the Greek, the word hold fast really means to glue together. It's like taking two objects that are different and gluing them together so they can't come apart. So what does God say happens? He takes a man, he takes a woman, and he glues them together so they hold fast for a lifetime commitment. Why would God take an image bearer of God called man and an image bearer of God called woman who are very similar yet very different and glue them together, have them hold fast together? Because he's trying to help us understand something. Look at the very next verse in Ephesians 5. After he says the two will become one flesh, then verse 32. This mystery is profound. Now what mystery? The mystery of a man and woman being glued together. That's the mystery that he's talking about. The mystery of marriage. Now, let me clarify here. When he's saying that marriage is a mystery, he's not saying husbands, your wives are the mystery, or wives, your husbands are the mystery. Now, I know it feels that way a lot of times in our marriage. We're going, I don't understand the way she thinks. And she's going, I don't understand the way he thinks. Again, we're both image bearers of God. We're very similar, but in God's design, we're very different in a lot of ways. And God glues us, different people, image bearers of God, together into this marriage. What is the mystery then? Well, how is mystery used in Ephesians? Not of, man, I don't understand her. Wow, I don't understand him. Mystery in Ephesians is used in a very different way. In fact, it's used five other times in Ephesians. If you go back a page to Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to see how mystery is used so we understand what God's purpose in marriage is here. In Ephesians chapter 3, look back in verses 3 and 4 where Paul's talking about mystery. He goes, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So I've written briefly. Then verse 4, when you read this, you can receive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So this is not mystery in the way we often feel about our husbands and wives. This is a different type of mystery. And what does he mean? Go down to verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul's talking about what his commission is. He says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So mystery in the Bible is something that was, that was a previously hidden purpose of God that's now made known. So don't miss that. A mystery in the Bible is a previously hidden, unknown purpose of God that is now made known. A purpose of God that people in the past did not understand are now given revelation of to understand what God is doing. And so marriage is a mystery, a mystery that was not fully understood in the Old Testament. Though people obeyed it, though people followed it, the full understanding of it was not revealed in the Old Testament. Only in Christ now is the mystery of marriage, God's purpose for it, beginning to make more sense. And look back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, about this mystery. This mystery is profound. The mystery of marriage, the mystery of a husband and wife being glued together in God's plan. This mystery, this purpose of God that used not be understood, but can now be understood. It is profound. It is significant. It's important. We need to take notice. And so what is the purpose of God in marriage? The mystery that used to not be known, but because of Christ is now known? It is that marriage is to show us the relationship of Christ and his church. Look at verse 32 again of chapter 5. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul doesn't leave us guessing here. He's not asking us to try to figure out what this mystery might be and leaves us on some 
quest to figure this out. He tells us very explicitly the mystery of a man and woman being glued together, of holding fast, is to show us God's purpose for Christ and the church. Christ, God himself, the second person of the Godhead. The church, not the building, but the people. What is it that marriage is all about? Showing us how Christ Jesus himself, how God himself relates to the people of God, the church, and what the relationship is supposed to be like. Now, the focus of this text is on how Christ relates to the church. In these verses that follow here, we see what Christ has already done for us. We see what Christ is doing for us today. And we see what Christ will still do in the future that is yet to come to pass. You have in these verses very detailed descriptions of what Jesus has done. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. And again, this is the emphasis of the text. I want to make sure we don't miss that. So let's start with past tense. What has Jesus done for his church already? Look at verse 25. And when we read this verse, our minds typically go to the command to husbands. I want us to, we'll come to that in the weeks to come, but I want us to focus on what Christ has done. So try to turn our attention to what the emphasis here is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What is, how does, what has Christ already done for church? He has already loved us. He has already, past tense, given himself up for us. What is this talking about? Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. That's what we've already seen earlier in our study of Ephesians. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What has Christ already done for us, his people, us, the church? He has already, past tense, loved us. And don't miss it, he loved us when we were unlovely. He didn't wait for us to take steps to come to him. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act to come to him. When we were dead in our sins, when we were lost with no hope on our own, he chose to love us. And friends, in our culture, we relegate love to emotional feelings so often. We treat love as if it's just a feeling you can fall into or fall out of. But God's love for us is, yes, there's feelings in it, but God's love is a commitment, a choice that he makes and he acts on that, and that was to willingly love us, for Jesus himself to willingly leave the glories of heaven, where he was being adored and worshipped. He stepped down from all of that and was born in a manger with animals all around. The creator who spoke the universe into being, who created marriage itself, is born in a manger with animals all around. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law, so that the law that we can never fulfill, and he did that so he could be an innocent sacrifice, who could take the punishment we deserve, because a holy God cannot overlook sin. God loved us when we were still in our sins, and he chose to humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we could be forgiven. Now, if we're back in Ephesians chapter 5, if you go back to verse 23, and focus on what Christ is on here, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Christ loved us and chose to save us when we were unlovely when we were undeserving in that. And he chose to rescue us from our sins. This is past tense. This has already happened. If you want the big word for it, we call this justification. Justification has already happened. What Christ did on the cross, he's already secured our forgiveness. He's already made a way for us to be reconciled to God. He took the penalty we deserve. He has justified us. And friends, that is stunning. That is amazing. But it doesn't stop there. What is Christ doing for us now? Look at verses 25 and 26, still in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. Her here is the church now. Cleansed her by the washing of water with 
the word. What is Christ doing for us today, right now, even as we sit here? And what will he be doing tonight while we sleep? He will be sanctifying us. Sanctification just means growing us in godliness. He is giving us strength to obey his commands. He's helping us put off our sinful practice. He is giving us strength to put on righteousness and Christ-like character. Christ is actively working today, not just so we don't go to hell. He's already taken care of that with justification, but he is now working to make us more and more holy. He is sanctifying us. And how does he sanctify us? Verse 26 tells us, by the washing of water. Now, what in the world does this mean? Some people misinterpret this text and say this is all about baptism. This, for this has absolutely nothing to do with baptism here. What is this washing of water? Well, I want you to see up on the screen Ezekiel chapter 36, the, ver- the book that everyone runs to, right? The book of Ezekiel. I want you to see this because he's quoting imagery here for us that was in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel's telling us about a future time. This is not something that the people had experienced yet. This is what's still to come. This is the new covenant. And this is what Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So there's an imagery here of being washed with water to cleanse us. Now, how does God in the new covenant wash his people with water? Verse 26 tells us, he says, I will put to you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Now, remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, notice verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is the washing of water? It was the promise of the Holy Spirit coming to God's people. It was the promise of the Holy Spirit filling us. And think about what we've just seen. This text on marriage, which is really a picture of Christ in church, is coming right after Paul has told us to be filled with what? The Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And he showed us what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when we're being washed with the water, when Christ washes us, he's filling us with his Holy Spirit who gives us the grace to be able to walk in his statutes and to do what he said we should do. And how does the Spirit work? Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. He can work in lots of ways, but what's the main way he works? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with what? With the Word. The Holy Spirit can do lots of things, but what the Holy Spirit primarily does is he takes the Word of God and he lets it come alive to us. So when you read the Word of God, all of a sudden you find that conviction, that ouch, ooh, I'm following sure that, or that desire to want to study God's Word, that desire to be changed by the Word of God. The Spirit of God makes the Word of God come alive in the life of believers. When we're being tempted to sin and a verse pops into our mind, where's it coming from? He, the Holy Spirit who's within us, is bringing to mind Scripture we know that we might fight sin here. The Spirit of God is what's being promised here to wash us. So Christ has justified us. He's now sanctifying us. He's growing us in godliness by giving us the Holy Spirit who lets the Word of God come alive. But this is going to be important for the next two weeks. When we think of sanctification, of being purified, that can sound really harsh. It can sound really painful in our lives. But how does Jesus sanctify us? What is his attitude towards us, his church, his people, as he sanctifies us? We'll go down to verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now watch this. Just as Christ does the church. So what does Christ do to the church? Does he yell at her? I can't believe you're still in sin. I can't believe you're still doing that. I've redeemed you. I've done all this. Get it, get, get it in order. He doesn't do that to us. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. And so he sanctifies us. Yes, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And yes, it's convicting when the Holy Spirit shows us sin. When we're reading the Word of God and we realize we're falling short. We're not walking worthy of our calling. But notice he does it in a nourishing, cherishing way. 
He, he chose to love us when we were unlovely. He looks on us in our continual struggles and doesn't walk away from us, and yet gives us his word, gives us the Holy Spirit, and gently, nourishingly changes us in the process. Past tense, Jesus has justified us. He's forgiven us. He let himself be killed so that we could be forgiven. He present tense is sanctifying us in a very loving, gentle, nourishing, cherishing way. He is making us more and more godly. And friends, if we stop there, that would be absolutely amazing. But this text shows us even more of what Jesus will still do for us that is yet to happen yet. So future tense, what's still to come that Jesus will do for us has not happened yet. Look at verse 27, the next verse that follows in Ephesians 5. So that, so why did he give himself up for us? Verse 25, why then did he sanctify us? It's all building here to the climax. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As we call this glorification. This is the future day that has not yet happened when all of us stand before God and all of our sins are done away, where there's no more temptation, no more sadness. We are pure before Him. It says here in verse 27, there's no spot or wrinkle. Just to be a beautiful image for us that we're sin-free. The day is coming, not just that we're being sanctified now, but the day is coming when there's no more sin in our life, no more temptation, no more struggles, no more fines, that we will be pure, completely made holy before him. Now hold your finger there and go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19. Because I want you to see how this future day is described, this day when Jesus completely presents us to himself without sin, without spot, without any blemish. Now our teenagers who are going very slowly through the book of Revelation with Ira on Sunday mornings, are already probably familiar with a lot of this. And I love the fact that our youth are going deep right now in the Word of God into understanding the book of Revelation. But Revelation chapter 19, we're starting in verse 5. And notice the imagery for how this future day is described. This day when we're presented to God without sin, without spot, without blemish, no stains, no wrinkles, nothing. We're completely made pure. Notice the imagery God uses for what this day will be like. Revelation chapter 19, verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the... Now notice this, the marriage... Of the Lamb has come. Don't miss the imagery. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linens, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They said to me, These are the true words of God. This future day of glorification, when when Christ has fully sanctified us and we stand before him, is presented in terms of marriage. It's the imagery God has created to help us understand this. The bride here is the church. The groom here is Christ. And the bride, the church, has been chosen by the groom, has been loved by the groom, has been purified by the groom, and now stands before the groom in brilliance with no spot and no wrinkle, completely pure the way God designed for it to be. Friends, Christian marriages are all about, in God's purpose, the mystery of the past now revealed is to help us understand the picture of Christ and the church. And it's so much to represent that, that even what happens in the future in heaven is described in terms of marriage because there's no other analogy to help us understand how Christ relates to his church. Because that means every Christian marriage on this earth is to point to that reality. 
that relationship of Christ in the church, to that intimacy that Christ and his church has, to the care and concern that Christ has for his church. That means, friends, if God created marriage to help us understand the relationship of Christ and his church, then marriages have to be patterned a certain way. Don't miss that. If God's ultimate purpose in marriage is to portray the relationship of Christ in the church, then we're not free to create our marriages whatever feels good to us or whatever our culture says is best or whatever makes us happy. That's not what God's interested in in this. If Christian marriages are to help us understand the relationship of Christ in the church, then we have to pattern them in a certain way. Why? Friends, because our understanding of how Jesus relates to his church and his church responds to him is at stake if we don't pattern our marriages the way he designed. Because it gets even more serious though, because our kids' understanding of how Jesus and the church relate is at stake in how we pattern our marriages. But not just our understanding or our kids' understanding, the community of faith's understanding of how Jesus and the church relate is at stake in how we order our homes. Our lost friends, lost neighbors, lost co-workers, their understanding of how Jesus and the church relate is at stake in how we choose to order our homes. There is much at stake. And if that's not enough reason to order our homes the way God says, there's another reason. What follows after all this in Ephesians 6 is a topic of spiritual warfare. There is a very real enemy who wants to do everything he can to keep people from understanding who Jesus is, keep people from understanding what the church is supposed to be about and how Jesus and the church Relate, And so he's going to do all he can to blind people, and he's going to do all he can to attack Christian marriages because the ultimate picture God has given in this earth for this season is to portray Christ in the church in our home life. So the enemy of no surprise is going to attack really hard because if he can destroy our homes, if he can destroy our marriages, he's destroying the image God has given us to help the world understand how Christ and the church relates. Because there is much at stake, and therefore, should we be surprised that there's such a struggle? Why do so many Christian marriages end up with such conflict and strife and people being so polarized? Friends, because so much is on the line for doing this God's way, for portraying Christ in the church to ourselves, to our fellow believers, to our kids, to the lost all around us. That means we have to pattern our marriages where men model Christ-like love for their wives in the same way Christ loves the church. Women model responding to their husbands the way the church responds to Christ's sacrificial love. Now, what does that practically look like? Next week. I have to come back in the next two weeks for that. So that's enough to chew on for today and for this week. But for us to realize, friends, that so much at stake, that God's plan for marriage is not primarily my happiness, having my felt needs met, getting what I want, having someone to serve me. That's not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to display for the whole world to see how Christ relates to his church and how the church relates to Christ so that all around might see the glory of God and follow him as well. So I'm going to give us a question to chew on this week. For those, and two questions, really. For those of us who are married, here's our, our question. Is my marriage more and more reflecting how Christ and the church relate? Is my marriage more and more reflecting how Christ and the church relate? You know, Julie and I are coming up on 10 years this year. And I hope by God's grace, we better now reflect how Christ is relating than we did 10 years ago. God's sanctifying all of us and growing us. So friends, those of you who have been married, whether it's one year or 40 or 50 years, is there sanctification happening in your marriage? By God's grace, more and more is your marriage aligning to be a picture where if your kids or your grandkids look at your marriage, they can see visually displayed before them the attitude of Christ to the church and the attitude of the church to Christ lived out right before them. As our marriage is more and more reflecting Christ in the church. 
And for all of us, regardless of our marital status, whether we're married now, whether we want to be married, whether we are single and feel called to that, the question for all of us in this text is not so much about marriage as it is about Jesus. So am I more and more experiencing Jesus' love for me? Am I more and more understanding how he justified me? Am I more and more enjoying the sanctification processes he, by his grace, is not leaving us lost in our sins, but breaking those strongholds of sins and growing us in godliness? And am I more and more anticipating, longing for that day of glorification when I can stand with all the other saints before his throne, pure, not because of me, but because of what he has done in purifying us, that we might forever worship his friends, regardless of whether we're married or not, are we more and more understanding and experiencing his love for each one of us and how he's justified us, how he is sanctifying us, and how he will glorify us one day. Friends, as we think about those things, I can't think of a better Sunday to celebrate communion. We didn't design it that way. That's just the providence of God, the way this text lined up with a Sunday we had set aside to celebrate communion. Friends, I want to remind us that we think about what Christ has done. Communion kind of has two parts to it. There's a past tense part of it that we remember what Christ has done for us. In Ephesians chapter 5, listen to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That Christ gave himself up for us. Friends, when we see the bread broken, when we see the juice, it reminds us that for us to be justified, what Christ has done for us, there was a high cost. God is so holy and so perfect, he can't just overlook sin. He can't be like, oh, I like him, I like her, I'll just ignore that. The penalty has to be paid. If no penalty is paid, there is no holy God. The holiness of God requires the penalty to be paid. So a penalty had to be paid, so Christ took it for us because we could never bear it ourselves. And so his body was broken. So as you receive the elements and you see the juice, you see the bread, it reminds us that he willingly sacrificed himself for us. That's past tense. That's our justification. But communion is also future tense. It's longing for the day that Christ returns to take us home. This longing for the day that we're fully sanctified and fully purified to where we're glorified, where we're restored to the way things were made to be. For we see our Creator face to face. The mysteries are, are gone away with, and we get to be in His presence forever. And so as we take communion, we're not just celebrating what Christ has done. We're rejoicing what He's still doing for us today and what He still will do in the future. As such, friends, this is for anyone who is a believer. It doesn't matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. But if you're one who knows that God has justified you, that he's forgiven you of all your sins, you see evidence of him sanctifying you. Because, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not just you pray to prayer and you're in the kingdom. If you're a true follower of Christ, he will discipline us when we sin. He will pursue us. And so if we're a true follower of Christ, one of the evidences is he doesn't leave us where we are. So, friends, if you're a true follower of Christ, and you know that where he's forgiven you, but you see him pursuing you, you see him changing you, you see him growing you in who you are, and you have hope for that future day when you will be with him forever, you are welcome to come participate. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not sure about those things, the Scripture warns us not to take this in an unworthy manner. I'd encourage you as we receive the elements just to stay where you're seated. No one's going to shame you. No one's going to ask you any awkward questions. If you're not sure you're a follower of Christ, just remain where you're seated when the others come to receive it. And use the time to pray. Say, God, I'm not sure about all this I'm hearing. If you're real, would you show yourself to me? Just use a simple prayer of faith, just asking God, if you're real, show yourself to me. And just a thing can reflect as we celebrate. If you are a believer, I want to invite you to participate. But I want to invite you to not rush through it. And this is a sacred time for us to remember and reflect on the cost for our forgiveness for our sins, to reflect on what Christ has and is doing, and to use the time to search our hearts and see if there's unconfessed sin, to find things to be thankful for, to rejoice in who God is. And so I'd encourage you, to, while you're waiting to receive the elements and after you receive the elements, just to rejoice and be in awe of who God is 
and to worship him for it. I'm going to pray for us. And after our prayer, our worship team is going to come receive the elements. And then our deacons will help direct the rest of you to come to the front row by row to receive this as we celebrate what Christ has done. Would you pray with me? Father God, our hearts are filled with gratitude for all that you have done for us. God, to think that in your infinite love and in your infinite mercy, you looked upon undeserving sinners like us. People who deserve nothing but hell and punishment because we had all offended you. We had all broken your standards. But God, you were rich in mercy. And God, I thank you for your sweet mercy and grace that looked upon us when we were still dead in our transgressions and our sins. Lord Jesus, I think you died for us. And I pray right now for myself and these precious brothers and sisters, God, that as we see the bread that was broken, as we see the juice, that we'll be reminded at what cost there was that we might be forgiven of our sins. God, I pray you would use this time in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters to just let it lead us to a place of worship for all that you've done and for who you are. To use this time to convict us of sins, Lord, there's sins in any of our hearts that we're not dealing with, that we're not confessing, that we're not seeking to grow in. I pray right now that your Holy Spirit who fills us might bring those to mind that before we take the the bread and the juice that we would do business with you and confess our sins to you and receive from you the forgiveness that comes. So Lord, you've given us that sweet promise. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, we're thankful that you have given us so many things to help us understand who you are and how you relate to us. You've given us marriage. You've even given us the beautiful symbol of communion. God, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would have his way in our hearts, that as we celebrate this, this truly will be an act of worship. And Lord, because we've worshipped you and because we've met with you, our lives will be different. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.